Um, we, in two weeks, we skip a class because Kirtani will be here for a satsang at Chela Bhavan, but next week we still meet. And uh, tomorrow, a few of us go down to Los Angeles for the hearing for Jai Ram, which is on Thursday morning. So do keep that in your prayers too. Okay. Any questions or thoughts before we go to the next sections? All right. Number 91. Dr. Lewis told me, I once said to Master, One thought is troubling me, sir. Supposing after long effort I attain liberation, is the freedom I'll attain good for this one day of Brahma only? What if, when creation is remanifested after the next night of Brahma, I, along with everyone else, get sent out again and have to go through the long, painful struggle all over? Wouldn't all these present efforts then seem almost futile? Never fear, the Master reassured him. Once the soul becomes free, it remains so for eternity. Never more will it have to roam the long, winding road of evolution. What, what, the long, excuse me, never more will it have to roam the long winding road of evolution. That answer, doctor admitted to me, came as a great consolation. And then he explains, a day of Brahma is described in the Indian scriptures. It is one complete period of cosmic manifestation lasting billions of years. The day of Brahma is followed by a period of equal duration called the night of Brahma. During Brahma's night, all creation is withdrawn from outward manifestations. Beings that are not yet liberated rest in seed form for that time, in the consciousness of spirit, awaiting the Creator's next manifestation. When the following day of Brahma dawns, they resume whatever state they attained formerly. Isn't it interesting how the mind works? Can you? I mean, all of it being so new, you can see Dr. Lewis just gradually trying to sort this out and having finally having the freedom to ask Master such a question. But really, you would really wonder, that would be, that would be the definition of hell, wouldn't it? Billions of years of spiritual effort and then you just get to start over again. That's the labors of Sisyphus. That's the story. Yeah, you get the rock almost to the top. I, it's, I mean, how does the mind comprehend billions? How does the mind comprehend eternity? I, I myself, I mean... I've been talking about this and thinking about it for most of my life. But it still, and he says this in a few minutes, when samadhi comes, it's a complete revolution that the ego literally can't imagine what that experience is. It's, it's so completely outside of anything that we know. I mean, one has to, I have to. I just have to reduce the path down to the bites that I, the steps that I can take. It, at first, you sort of have I ha, uh, you have this great thought of this one giant stride from here to eternity, but after a while, the mind can just flip on it. Although it depends, some people are more impersonal, and um, I remember being in Pune when Anand was there, Kirtani's husband Anand, and um, we had to give some program together and. He just talked about the atoms and the molecules. And, and it was actually very interesting to me because um, it was completely, it was completely, uh, what's the word is? 
it was it, for him it was very personal i mean he it it for him all of those concepts which i just don't even i never go there were as direct for him as the, the way that i work and you you just see how every atom of creation finds its own path in this amazing complexity of creation where everybody just has to untie the knots and wind along their own their own way it makes such a mockery of dogmatism because with with I mean we were standing right next to, to each other and we've both been devotees for approximately the same period of time in the same reality i couldn't have i couldn't have delivered the talk he gave for anything it would never have occurred to me to do it and i couldn't have delivered it with any uh, semblance of comprehension or integrity <laughs> i might have been able to read it but it was just nothing would have worked but there we were it is it's so it it also um the solitariness of our individual consciousness it's actually it's a little um frightening it's one of the more frightening aspects of life and one of the things that does drive us to the path and the one reality that um people do absolutely everything they can to avoid especially in our culture now i uh, my favorite experiences at the YMCA which you all get to hear about periodically um the new iteration is some individual who who spends a long time on her personal preparation for the day in the locker has decided that she can't spend that 10 minutes unless she has some of what of her sounds going on which are extremely dissonant to my ears and it's it's a locker room so her bringing the one item in of course the whole room has to listen when i proposed that to her that maybe not all of us wanted to hear it she just became defensive outraged that i would even bring it up and just told me that she had to have it and my response was i guess you do i mean i didn't say it but that was i'm just looking at her you know because the unbearable reality of your own consciousness undistracted and i was thinking about in the song that swami wrote actually for the crucifixion of christ as you remain our friend long we feared to face your love lest our emptiness it prove and this is very is profound i've also been very in the same light in in a humorous but not humorous way i remembered the negro spiritual nobody knows the troubles i've seen I'm not sure whether i've sung that for you in this class or not but it's been in my head a lot because of the extremely deep-seated inclination to seek comfort from each other from what from everything i mean we just we're always trying to be comforted and there's some enduring truth to it because of the principle of soulmates and swami would talk about it a lot and of course the last book he wrote was that book about soulmates um love life perf- love perfected life divine and he he all, he would talk about soulmates it was like it was a subject that he was always interested in 
I mean, it wasn't like he returned to it endlessly, but he, he would, it would come through, like for many years. And he, he talked about how Master only spoke of it in one place, um, that which um, man has, God has joined together, let no man put asunder from the Bible. And Master said that was not a reference to human marriage because human marriage is constantly being put asunder, both by, either by actual separation, by indifference, which becomes a separation whether your bodies are still together, or by death. And he always says, you know, um, what we read in here, lovers pledge eternally, and the moon laughs at their parched bones lying on the sand. You remember the beautiful we did for Valentine's Day, that one, right? <laughs> but... Uh, but Master spoke of the reality of, of soulmates, that everything in creation is dual, and therefore we all, we all have an actual corresponding consciousness, individual consciousness. And for that book, Love Perfected Life Divine, I wrote in either the cover or the preface of the conversation I had with Swamiji once where he just said, no desire is... Every desire has to be fulfilled and one of the strongest desires in the human heart is to be loved. And Swami, in his very honest way, said not just abstractly by God but individually, personally loved by someone. And he said, and God wouldn't have planted that in our hearts if there wasn't a destined fulfillment for it. And he just proposed that not as a, 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 an argument in any way for marriage but for the fact that there is this uh, actual alt- uh, second half. And, and so much of our life, um, consciously or unconsciously, is based on just some wanting to be approved, to be accepted, to be understood, um, just to, to be known and appreciated. But all of life an effort to find that outside of inner consciousness um, even in the best of circumstances always remains somewhat frustrated and in most people's lives it remains massively frustrated and we and then we just keep trying again and again it's very interesting and then I started thinking of that Negro spiritual Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. And I think of those poor black people enslaved and dehumanized and completely disregarded in every way that the human heart craves. And I actually sort of understood how, how powerful that song must have been for them because really there was, there was no place they could look. I mean, they could marry and have children, but tomorrow the whole family could just be indifferently ripped apart and no one would ever care. I mean, that doesn't even speak about being brutalized and having no freedom. Um, but there's, there's so much truth in that. Nobody really knows on a very, very, very deep level. I, I don't find this easy. It's not, this is not like something, oh, I've got this one worked out. But I was um, corresponding with a, a man who has a drinking problem. A very good man, good friend, 
really fine fellow, but he has a drinking problem. There you have it, you know. And so so deeply imprinted on his DNA that, you know, it's, it's actually, it's physiologically um, verifiable. But, of course, your DNA is just your karma. So there you have it. And this man has an, ex- actually, I would call it, say he has a brilliant mind, a brilliant creative mind. And uh, we were exchanging notes, and he's very intense. And I'm very intense. <laughs> and, I mean, he's a kindred spirit, so I understand um, the desire to blunt that intensity. You know, when you, when you have such an intense inner life, you, you want to blunt it. It's just unbearable a great deal of the time. And it, it was interesting, I was reflecting on it, and I, do, I, don't have, I don't have past life memories, but I can remember. I remember heroin, I remember alcohol, I remember promiscuity, I remember obesity, I remember madness. Madness is the one I remember the most. Of just... Suicide, that's the other one you do. Which is just an effort to, to blunt the intensity of that experience, just looking for another way out. Long I feared to face your love. But also when we're talking about facing that divine love, we're also cognizing that, you know, I, I use the phrase promiscuity, which is another way of saying it, but just the desperate thought for human fulfillment and having to to really, finally, fully admit that we'll always be discontented until we get there. Swami said something amazing once, and he, he had to be speaking from experience from the way he said it. He said, when you first realize the oneness of God and, and recognize that that oneness is your own, he said, for just a moment you are intensely lonely. It's an interesting statement because you are absolutely solitary. I mean, there's, there is no other. And then he says, a bliss comes in. But just even that thought is so uh, fascinating. And it's just, the spiritual path is really serious and it's just a question of time. I mean, this was Dr. Lewis, you know, just time after time, you're brought right up to the edge of it and we, you know, choose. I, you know, I, I remember Swami saying once about someone making a particular choice and he said, well, they have a serious spiritual problem and they're looking for a human solution. And it was perfectly reasonable and and really I think the individual had no choice you know they just was right up against the edge of it and just couldn't cross so went over here to work I mean Swami said to me once when I had uh, it was a, a relationship karma that was pretty tough and he said basically you've taken it as far as you can go he said probably in this incarnation it's not finished but can't be forced and so he said, just, you know, put it here and just go learn more. <laughs> and eventually you'll come back to it. So 
Um, it, it comes in our readings today. I mean, there's just a point where um, you can't go any farther and you have to just do something to give yourself a chance to learn. The, the, the saving grace that we always have to work with, though, is... Um, oh, I know, that was the other part of this, this thought about, you know, heroin, alcohol, and all of that. I tried to think... Because, especially if the addiction has imprinted itself so deeply on your physiology that it's a medical condition which I, I don't dispute that it's a medical condition. I mean, because our bodies are the manifestation of our consciousness. So, of course, our bodies are going to reflect our consciousness. And if our consciousness is desperately seeking an alternative, then everything will keep going that way. That's the way it works. But I started to ask myself, what ever breaks this cycle? And interestingly, the phrase that came to me, and I, I haven't thought this through to the end, so I don't know if it's accurate or not, but I realize what breaks the cycle is self-honesty. Because inherent in the whole cycle of isn't there something I can bring in from the outside that's going to change the way I am on the inside, there, there's always a slight unwillingness to take responsibility and to really just see myself for what I am, whatever it might be. And, you know, it's not just... um, You can't just affirm those things away. Uh, The the spiritual path is more complicated than that. And in, you know, the naive early years of Ananda, we just used to think you could just change your karma just by getting the right phrase out of the book. And we used to offer each other what I called true but entirely irrelevant spiritual advice. (laughs) Just pull up your socks, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) Straighten your spine. You can do it. And just not having any idea of how uh, complicated the drama was. But nonetheless, if even if you're powerless to change, if if you're self-honest, then you're on the road. Because it's really not then anybody's fault. And, and, even self-honesty is, is, you have to be kind to yourself at the same time because it's, um, it's not honest to consider yourself unloved by God because of your wrong actions. That's also not honest. And that's sort of, that's the, that's the other side. A self-loathing, self-hatred, all of those things is also not honest. You're blaming others or you're blaming yourself in such, to such an exaggerated extent that either way there's no way that, that the grace of God can come in. Or it's harder for the grace of God to come in because you're blocking it. I, I, it's an interesting thought to me because of the way my mental world is um, I, I have to think, I think about these things more than some do because I you know, I, I've, I've suffered on the mental level and things like drug addiction and so on are, you know, it's because of internal pain like that. So people, uh, I just, I, I get it. I know where they're going. Yeah. So when you're talking about drug addiction and that sort of thing that you sort of remember, it's not that you know the karma, but it has a, you have a feeling that you can relate, that you probably I, have well, that. Yeah, it's not, like I said, it's not like I've dreamt of doing it, but mm-hmm. I, 
I understand why you I understand why you do it. I do understand it. why you do it so clearly mm-hmm. that it can't be an understanding that's come from anything except that I must have walked that. I must path. have done it. Yeah. And I I recognize my intensity on the spiritual path is because related of back that. To that. Okay. Because I've been there, tried that, you know, this is the last option. Mhm. Mm-hmm. You know, all the others didn't work, and this is the last and only option, and uh, it does work. But uh, at not overnight, and there's, you know, there's just a lot of long days and nights when nobody knows the troubles I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus. I, I actually sometimes change that, that nobody cares about the troubles I've seen. <laughs> and I know that sounds cynical, but I actually find that very helpful. I sing that to myself, nobody cares. It's not that people don't love you. I mean, I have lots of friends. Everybody is very kind. But nobody really knows. And it, it helps me also to realize that because then you look with more compassion on everyone else because you realize that no, nobody, you don't really know what they're going through either. That's how Swami was. But Swami did know. In fact, one of our readings, I don't know if we'll get to it today, it just, it was about how Sri Yukteswar trained master to be um, to be able to ride the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and Swami says someone who loved people as much as master would suffer so much from their betrayals and so on he had to be toughened up a bit because he does he can see, he does know he's inside of us and that's why uh, that's the tremendous attraction of saints is that they do know and, and you know that you, you, you're meeting someone who actually knows I mean I, I would say that unequivocally that you know that there's so many reasons why um, the greatest blessing of my life without anything anywhere even in the same room with it is my life with Swami was because he, he really did he always understood I mean, nobody understood, but he always did. He always knew exactly where I was coming from. No matter how convoluted and wacky it looked to everybody else, he always knew in just a straight line. It was never even, it was effortless for him to understand, which is very refreshing. You know, someone who's misunderstanding you uh, never have. It's very relaxing. Yes, Nishikama. The only true option always turns out to be the final option. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. It is amazing, but um, love is all I know. What was the, the magician? What a fool was I to turn away? Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Very strange. But there you have it. Okay. Any other comments or questions? All right. Number ninety-two. I, Walter, meaning Swamiji, was having great difficulty in quieting the mind in meditation. I felt an inner rebellion against the very idea of inner peace. Very complicated, huh? Don't fight your mind, counseled the master. Treat it like a donkey. That beast is so stubborn that sometimes it won't budge even when it is beaten repeatedly. If its owner lets it stand still for a while, however, the donkey finally resumes walking again of its own accord. The best thing when your mind rebels is to let it stand a while. (laughs) Don't be too hard on it. Let it make its point. (laughs) After that, 
it will resume advancing of its own accord without being forced. I mean, we have to be so impersonal about ourselves. And, uh, well, the balancing one is the very next one. It's, this is always the question, how much self-discipline is enough? Self-discipline. Number 93, the master was a strong advocate at the same time of self-discipline. You must be tough on yourself, he used to say to us. He described a boyhood friend of his whose mother was raising him in a hard school. I love Swami's writing sometime. Look at that phrase. His mother was raising him in a hard school. It's, it says everything, but how carefully and exactly he says it. It's just a magnificent writing. He was also hard on himself, the master said. His mother would beat him regularly, and he had come to look upon her beatings as simply a fact of life. One day he climbed a tree and fell off it. He was able to cling to the tree trunk and slide down it to the ground by keeping his arms wrapped around the trunk. When he reached the ground, his chest was all shredded and bleeding. We gazed at him in horror. All he said, however, was, What are you staring at? Hurry and cover me up. Get some dust. Get anything. Plaster me over. My mother will beat me up. I mean, you know, in our modern context, we're so horrified by that story. It's hard, it's hard to, you know, just imagine Master presenting it as any kind of an example of a case when you should call the social worker. <laughs> but he says, that's what I mean. Be tough. Don't baby yourself. And it's a brutal example. But it, it's, I think if it were less extreme, you wouldn't actually remember it. So he's not counseling, of course, on any level that we treat each other like that. But, I, I mean, I do remember this story a lot because it's so vivid, it's hard to forget it. And um, Swami is, has been fond of telling the story about how so much suffering is mental and about the doctor who worked in uh, some un, uh, un developing country, as they call it. And he talked about on Saturday nights in the surgery there, people would get into bar fights and knife fights and just come in in all kinds of brutal conditions. But um, they were not, uh, they didn't have a sensitive self-concept. They were rugged, they, they lived outdoors, they lived in a simpler way, their lives were hard. And so they, they just didn't see themselves as, as something to be pampered. And he tells the story about somebody coming in with his intestines in his hand, hands like this, because he'd sort of been, his tummy had been ripped. And, and the, the, the guy said to the doctor, oh, don't bother with anesthesia, just stuff them back in and sew it up. Because he just, he wasn't uh, frightened he wasn't horrified, he was whatever the right word is. He didn't have that delicacy. And he says, the more refined and civilized you get, the more small things upset you because you're always taking care and you're always comfortable. So I, I remember this story a lot when either emotionally or physically something happens and, and the mind sort of wants to go into some... A sense of anxiety about the whole thing that's taken place. How can people treat this with me this way? Why am I sad again? Will I ever stop being upset? Oh, look at all the blood, you know, whatever it might be. But you think of this guy just sliding down the tree and it's like, 
So what? We just go on. And, and there is an extremely admirable and positive side to that. All of these things have to be understood in the right way because um, it's one thing um, to be psychologically unhealthy. And as again, in the context that we live in, there's all these, these things. But if you're not, it, the premise of self-realization is that you have solid psychological health. And so you're psychologically healthy, you're completely in your body, you're not dissociated, you're not hiding from traumas. You're just saying it's not worth it. Let me solve this problem in another way other than by just being so delicate about it. And uh, it's, it's very, very interesting. So think about this woman I know, a very strong woman. She just says she's just been a warrior in so many lifetimes that it just... Um, she, she really literally doesn't notice injuries because in so many lifetimes she just trained herself to be in battle. And when you're in battle, you're just not stopping to think. And so she really can really actually hurt herself and just really not even cognize it with her mind because she's just accustomed to not doing that. And you can see the value of that. That's what Swami was able to do. He was able to control his mind so powerfully he would tell us the dental, the stories of the dentist and uh, the operation when the anesthesia wore off, where he he was being sewn off with the sewn up with the anesthesia wearing off, and he not only endured it, but he didn't so much as flinch or change his breathing, because if the doctors had known, they wouldn't have continued. So he had to fool the surgeon. I mean, think about how much you just have to remove yourself. Or when Swami talked about dreaming about being burned at the stake and you're standing there tied to the stake with the flames starting up around him and just being able to say calmly well you know it'll, uh, it'll be unpleasant for a while but then it'll be over and I'll just be dead and just like that instead of my foot my foot my leg my leg my hand my hand who knows I have a, a, a I, I won't call it a major preoccupation with being tortured but it crosses my mind and I um, often try to imagine with you know what it would take to separate yourself out from that. I read a story about a man who was in the French Resistance, and he uh, he was he was caught and and tortured once, and he said somehow strangely he was just able to so completely remove his mind from the situation. He actually realized they were going to kill him unless he indicated that he was in some pain. So he had to, he started acting as if he was in pain because he, they, they kept escalating and he, he was astute enough to understand the process. Yeah, very weird, huh? But um, fascinating in our own tiny little context. Pray to God we never have to take it that far, but I mean... I just still, the concept of going without Novocaine is way beyond me. So, someone would tell us about that so many times. Every time he'd start, you'd think, please don't tell me again. You know, it's just horrifying even to hear it. And it was even worse to imagine you might have to do it. <laughs> tell me, is it a stage on the spiritual path to have your teeth filled without Novocaine? Please tell me it's not. <laughs> All right, number 94. My master, this is Master speaking. My master, Sri Yukteswar, 
was often harsh with me, even in public, the master said. His intention was to discipline me so I'd become indifferent to public opinion. One day before hundreds, he asked me to fetch him a glass of water. I went at once. As I returned with the glass, my foot caught on the corner of a carpet and flipped it over. Look at that clumsy oaf, scoffed my master, and everyone there laughed. I looked at them and thought, not one of you has attained what I have. But he succeeded in hardening me so I wouldn't be affected by anybody's opinion. And then Swami states, For one who loved people deeply as Master did, it was important that he become immune to the hurts they dealt him, their callousness and even their hatred. The Master just couldn't afford to have a delicate temperament. He needed to be... um, I'm going to just shift for a second. You know, in... uh, well, actually, I can finish it because it's at the end here, That what I wanted to say. Even with that hard training, the master loved his guru deeply. A picture of Sri Yukteswar hung in the hallway outside his apartment in Mount Washington. Whenever he passed it, he would pause a moment in silent prayer. It's so sweet, isn't it? That was the picture that was made out of uh, yarn that that man had gathered the walnuts for. And it, it was hung out there. It's, there's a picture of it in the path. Very few, he told me, Master said, were able to bear Sri Teshwar's discipline. Once the others in the ashram came to me in a body and said, let us leave here. We have decided to follow you instead. <laughs> you leave, I replied. I stay with my guru. Many fled. He didn't even want disciples. But you see... By converting me, he converted thousands. Sir, I once asked Master, was it because he knew he wouldn't be coming back to this world that he didn't want disciples? Was it because he didn't want the responsibility for anyone else on this plane? That's right, the Master replied. He had a few stragglers this time, that's all. What I was thinking about was... uh, that last line, uh, when Master said uh, a trillion times with bleeding feet across crags of suffering as long as one stray brother is left behind. And uh, when you think of you know, what, the ma- what the Master knows what he's committing to. And, and the, the commitment of a Master to liberate you um, is not a small thing and, and really can't be presumed upon. Think about Sri Yukteswar and Master in their first meeting when uh, Master you know, demanded of Sri Yukteswar that you, you have to promise to do this for me. And uh, Dr. Lewis meeting Master for the first time, you know, can, do you know what the spiritual eye is? Can you take me there? And then Master saying to Dr. Lewis, you know, I'm committing to you and will you always love me as I love you and with Swamiji I give you my unconditional love will you give me your unconditional love these were not actually that common as Swami sort of said toward the end of his life he, he realized that Master offering him his unconditional love in their very first meeting was not the way he dealt with everyone 
because the, the master has to be a bit sure of you before he's going to because once he promises there's no turning back on it as Swamiji would talk has talked about did talk I guess is how you say it about uh, the presumption of saying I believe in Jesus and therefore he has to save me he said it's not merely enough for you to believe in that he that you know you, you believe you're saved he also has to accept you and he he wanted uh he wanted us to take seriously our side of the equation. I mean, that's not meant to make us uh, nervous. But if the disciple doesn't do his part, and, and the... I don't exactly know how to think about it, but I know that um, you have to continuous, continuously um, affirm that bond. And certainly I, I feel that you, you can never presume on it. You have to always be meriting it. Not that it's conditional or will be withdrawn, but it, he can't do anything for us unless we are really committed. And there's just such a tendency on the spiritual path, such a tendency in life. You become enthusiastic for a while, and then the sustained effort becomes tiresome. And we, we run out of steam, we get old, we get jaded, we get bored, um, the honeymoon ends, whatever it might be. How uh, I think of Marcel when he was playing Dr. Lewis and Master said to him, you know, you must never avoid me. You must promise never to avoid me. And Dr. Lewis agreed. And then he said, I didn't realize how difficult that promise would be to sustain in the, in the hard middle ground. And that middle ground was between the revelation that Master was going to to save him and the finishing of his karma over here and all that space in the middle when, well, all the things I was talking about, all the other ways that you can blunt the intensity of your inner experience for a time. That's uh, wine, money, uh, and, uh, what is it? And sexuality, right? The three big delusions that we use to, uh, I mean, as I said, I called it promiscuity, but what we were really talking about is uh, finding something that will comfort me, external, whatever it might be. Sex is just the sort of the big picture of it, but it's, I, I can somehow, I don't really have to heroically sacrifice myself. I can, somebody will just come in and take care of me. Um, very natural and necessary because uh, not merely because we have to experience the delusion of it but in the effort to pursue that we develop our qualities of selflessness and the more we develop our qualities of selflessness the more we're able to appreciate the inner reality and we, we just can't do it just by sitting there trying to be selfless we have to serve somehow uh, when we were when we were nuns, young nuns together, Swami would say, did say, you know, just think about how hard a mother has to work when she has young babies in a house full of children. He said, merely because you are not going to have children, don't think for a moment that you have to work less than that. You know, that, that total level 
of self-sacrifice that is represented by motherhood, um, even to the point of sacrificing literally physically your own body for the cause, he said that's just the beginning of what a renunciate has to do. Because the physical mother one is compelled to do it, and secondly, it's just physical life that she's nourishing. You know, we have to serve on many other levels than that. And that was, um, let's see, was the other part there? Um, let's see. Oh, the, just the, um, how, how once master becomes, well, actually in all, in all relationships, the master can never allow his response to people to be governed by their response to him. It's just he's God's instrument and therefore the unconditional love of God, the master has to be a perfect reflection of that. And when we say those things, you know, no, no matter what you do, God continues to love you and all are equally loved by God, that describes how the guru must behave. And in, in number 99 here, which is so fascinating, I remember the number because it's there, Master talks about the difficult role he plays being both human and divine. I mean, you know, it's such a problem. That's sort of how he puts it. It's fascinating. First time I read it, I just couldn't believe it was there. But it is. He, he has a human heart, and he has, and this I learned from Swami, he has natural human perceptions. You know, my, that person is behaving inappropriately. You know, what extraordinary ingratitude. It, he, it's not that he can't see it, or that I, I remember when one of the people who was involved in the litigation, who had been very very close with Swami and then turned against him in really, whoa, really horrible way. I said later, um, um, if the person wanted to come back, would you take them back? If they were really deeply sincere after how they behaved? Oh, he says, if they were sincere, I certainly would. But then he added, but knowing now what they're capable of, meaning treachery on this level, he said, I would treat them differently. Which I thought was just a perfect answer. It's like, I, now that I know, I mean, it he, he wasn't that he wouldn't have known before, but now that it's been brought to the surface, then I have to respond. That's how Master, in one of our earlier ones, talked about if, you know, I'm the mother, and if my child falls, I have to rush over. But if I go to pick up my child and he starts shooting at me, he said, I have to just keep my hands to myself. I can't just reach out. And so, you know, think how just completely non-reactive, completely, utterly impersonal Master would need to be to be able just to observe it and then make just a completely selfless decision. And I mean, I'm putting it like this because here's all of us and we're, we have to go, we have to walk the same path. We're, we're earlier on that path, but the, the, the rules are just the same. And it's only whether, how, how close we come to perfection, not whether we have to walk it the same. Yes, Tandava? I was thinking, it's fascinating that parenthetical comment in there about uh, because Master loved people so deeply, he had to be trained to be immune to all the hurts and betrayals because it, that's so backwards from you know our, our sort of automatic assumption that if you love so much you're very sensitive and you really feel it when things happen to I you um, 
but if you accept that that's possible, it does make so much more sense. <laughs> actually, that's very, that's actually extremely apt because you balance that against the guy sliding down the tree and just being tough on himself. Yeah, and, and in fact, I mean, I, I was going to say this a moment ago, but I mean, I went through a lot of cycle of my life where I cherished my sensitivity. And I, I never, it didn't occur to me it didn't occur to me that it was a fault. I considered it a sign of, um, I wouldn't go so far as to say a sign of advancement. That would be wrong. But it was just like, uh, in as much as I was a, a spiritual person, naturally I was going to be sensitive and delicate and easily whatevered. And then uh, one day it just occurred to me that I really had that one backwards. In as much as I was a spiritual person, I should be utterly immune. And I, I really started going at it from a completely different angle. Really prior to that, I'd almost been cultivating it. I mean, it's uh, the YMCA. <laughs> well, I can just sit here and listen to this music and let me see if I can possibly just not respond. Instead of saying, what? <laughs> You've got your radio on in here? Radio, and people didn't have radios, whatever the word is, you know your personal music device <laughs> without any earbuds. <laughs> All right. Why don't we take a short break and then we'll go on from here. Um, during the break we were talking about uh, I, I, I see that I need a clarification. When I said would you take that person back who had behaved in such a treacherous way he said I would but I would treat them differently. I, what he meant by that was not that he would treat them differently in his own heart or that he would love them less or hold them at a distance. But if you know someone is treacherous, you don't allow them access to close information. You don't give them a position of responsibility. You don't um, put them in where other people are relying on them. You just know that this person can't be trusted and I don't want to... Uh, it's not fair to anyone, including that person, one, to tempt them, and two, to put others in jeopardy, knowing what this person is capable of at this point. And that's what he meant by that. Because the individual prior to that had been given, you know, an open door. And, you know, was very uh, in a position of great both influence and uh, access. And But knowing that, he, it, it wouldn't be responsible to do it after that. So uh, there was a man... Uh, who uh, was also really active, this was a man who was very active in the lawsuit in the most uh, horrible against a non sort of way, really awful. And uh, in, uh, when we went to the convocation in 2001 or 2001? Yeah, 2001, and that person was there and he came and he tried, <laughs> he tried to blackmail me into embracing him. I don't mean hugging him, but embracing him, essentially trying to tell me that um, it would be spiritually expansive for me to do so. My response was, you know, your behavior hurt so many people. Have you repudiated anything that you did? And uh, he said, uh, or his partner said, I regret I'm sorry that people were hurt. 
I said, wow, that is a clever non-answer, isn't it? You know, that is taking zero responsibility. And then I said, I would be irresponsible if I were to open the door to you in any way because you're telling me that you are exactly the same. Why would I bring you back in to the fold? And I wasn't angry, and I'm still not angry, but it, was, it would have been just stupid of me because knowing what I know, you know, and that, but so that's sort of like you can, you can be very firm and even stern and, you know, draw very solid lines. That's not the same as wishing the person ill. That's just simply looking at what you're looking at. This is what's happening. And if you change, that's one thing. But of course, in that situation too, you would never trust that person quite the same until for a long, long time they showed that that karma was really gone. I was, it was actually rather fun, that whole experience, because I didn't, it wasn't premeditated. It was just very spontaneous. You know, it just like... Because there was a lot of, you know, oh, you know, we're, a lot of time has passed and we're all really big. Why carry grudges, you know? It would be spiritually right. Just to, don't you think Master would be pleased if... I think something about this smells really funny. <laughs> I wrote Swami later he basically said good girl (laughs) okay shall we move on Um, number 95 sir I asked what stage must one have reached to be called a master he must have attained cosmic consciousness the stages of enlightenment he continued are first to be conscious of the own vibration throughout the body. Next, one's consciousness becomes identified with that own vibration beyond his body and gradually throughout the universe. One then becomes conscious of the Christ consciousness within the own vibration, first in the physical body, then gradually in the whole universe. When you achieve oneness with that vibrationless consciousness everywhere, you have attained Christ consciousness. That final stage lies beyond vibration itself, in oneness with God the Father, the Creator, beyond the universe, when, still in the highest state of consciousness, you can return to the body without losing your inner sense of oneness with God. That is complete freedom. All true masters, even those who are not yet fully liberated, live in that nirbhakalpa samadhi state. That is what Jesus Christ. Um, that is what Jesus Christ had. It was what he meant by perfection in saying, "Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect." To be a Christ-like master, one must have attained that state. On another occasion, the master gave this very simple explanation. You are a master when you can use your senses, but they don't use you. Very interesting, isn't it? I, um, I was reading something Swamiji said about master's words and writing about master and so on. He said, uh, even though master spoke in words, he didn't always use all the words because he would uh, 
there was so much intuition passing between himself and the people that he was talking to that he wouldn't have to say all the words for the whole thought to be communicated. And Swami talked about when it, even when he was dictating his commentaries and so on, and that's when the disciples' editing has to come through because it, when the master wasn't there projecting the thought, he might have only said half the thought and projected the rest of the thought. And so when it was written down, you have to write down the complete thought or else you haven't really um, said what the master said in a way that you could actually understand. I'm, I was looking at this and you, could, you can imagine master saying, you know, as he describes each of those states, you could imagine being able to go with him as he talked about it. And I was thinking when I was reading this, <clears throat> just the value of just reading that um, reading those those cumulative phrases, you know, the Om vibration in your body, identifying with the Om in all of the universe, feeling the Christ consciousness within that, being aware of that consciousness in the entire universe. Just following that stage, it's not exactly like the poem Samadhi by any means. But nonetheless, at some point, Master said these words and no doubt <clears throat> at least gave you some of a window onto that description that's written there. And <clears throat> rather than thinking it doesn't apply to us, it's the road we're going to have to walk down. If we have the map really clear in our mind, uh, and, and that it's not because the words will take us there. It's because Master was seeing what he was saying. In Whispers from Eternity, where he has all the spiritualized prayers and so on, he challenges the reader to penetrate through the paper and the ink to the uh, actual consciousness that was behind those prayers. <clears throat> and he, you know, he talks about from the cosmic level, it's come all the way down to paper and ink, but it's a portal, as they say. Portal? <clears throat> portal into it to where it came from. So this particular um, section is like that. I think this is why Swami talked about how when he asked Dayamata to define Christ consciousness and she said to him it's when you see everyone in the world as your brother and sister that Swami felt it was an inadequate definition you know when Master takes him through stages like this I mean, as, as a consequence of all of that, you may see everyone, but philosophically speaking, it was inadequate. Um, which is where we're going later when he talks about how complete the revolution is when you actually have samadhi. I love it also. You're a master when you can use your senses, but they don't use you. When your physical body is a pure vehicle for your consciousness and doesn't itself impinge on your consciousness. I, uh, I've been, of course, you know, doing all this uh, reliving of my whole life. And uh, when Swami, in 1977, when he was in India in seclusion after having written The Path, and there was no uh, telephone, email, anything like that. All correspondence was on uh, lightweight airmail things, and it was just a mess. 
Um, at one point, his address changed, and we sent a lot of letters to a place, and then they weren't forwarding those letters. And unfortunately, I, until the end, I didn't think to number the letters. So letters were crossing in the mail, and it was just a terror. And you know, one letter would take a month to arrive, and another would get there in three days. It was just chaos. And he, he was very attuned to my um, mental state, which oscillated a lot in addition to the chaos of the communication. And at one point, um, it, it was spring, and I used to get about, I used to get terrible hay fever at Ananda Village. Uh, uh, thank you, God, whatever it is that's up there that I'm so allergic to doesn't live down here. So for all these, load these many years, I haven't suffered from it. But it was always like a, a community event when Asha got hay fever because I got a little crazy. And I, at a certain point in the correspondence uh, from Seva, I got, oh, Swami understands now that you have hay fever. <laughs> and, you know, so we're less worried about you because we know that you have hay fever. And then he quoted that, she quoted what Swami has said before. People often think they're going through some really intense karma and it's actually just being triggered by something in the body. I mean, what would happen to me during the hay fever season is every breath I took was making me unwell. I mean, talk about paranoia. It's, it, and, and, there was, and it was an inescapable reality. The only place I was really comfortable was inside the walk-in refrigerator at the market. <laughs> so I go stand. And you know, for some reason, just the simple solution of taking some antihistamine, I, I guess we were just such purists, we just wouldn't do that. I did this whole thing once just for fun. This Ayurvedic doctor gave me this, this thing where I gathered spring flowers and I burned them and I collected the smoke and I scraped the ash off and then I took minute portions of it and it had no effect <laughs> because I'm not allergic to flowers, I'm allergic to grass. <laughs> that was a whole like two-year cycle. of. I mean, I remember burning the flowers and saving and scraping. It was just crazy. But... Uh, but he said, it's something physical. And yes, I'm allergic to grass. And my whole body goes on this, you know, this concept that the entire world is toxic and out to get me. Um, wow, that affected my mind. What a novel thought. I mean, it's so graphic. Of course, you know that. But Swami just has made that statement on several occasions. Basically, our bodies are using us. Which is an, another way of saying that we're, we're not strongly centered enough in uh, our own reality. Hormonal, endocrine, who knows? It, it, it's, it's a little disconcerting because you, you like to think that you're actually working out some karma on occasion. That's the real depressing part of that. You know? But uh, what would it be like if, we, if the, we, the body wasn't using us? It's, it's worth stopping and asking the question. Have you, you, you ever seen... Uh, uh, you know these the little videos that come out about uh, there's I know what it was there were two little children having lunch together and one of them was just having a total meltdown and the other one says you know the wisdom of a three year old to a four year old have you had a nap today <laughs> and the other little child says no no and then she says you need a nap. <laughs> But there it is with children. That, you know, the, the world has come to an end because they didn't have a nap. Yeah. And I'm like, we're bigger, but... 
Is it really so different? <laughs> okay. Now, any other questions? Number 96. Dr. Lewis told me, the master was reminiscing with me the other day. He spoke as an intimate friend of our years together. We've had a good life, he said. It seems only yesterday that we first met. Soon we will be separated, but in a little while we'll be together again. Can you imagine being the recipient of those comments from Master? Yeah, what a... And what we have to realize is um, also that he said those things and allowed them to be known because he was speaking to everyone. You know, he was, he was really talking to all of us. And, and it's, the balance in our own hearts with stories like that is to feel included in it rather than excluded. Because if you weren't there, you, f- you feel like, oh, I wish I could have, I, I would have loved to have earned, all that sort of thing. But really what he's just showing you is what Master's attitude was toward the people he loved. So if we're going to be one of those whom Jesus loved, we have to presume that uh, uh, he does love us and that's how he would speak of us too. Seemed just a little while ago that we met. Dr. Lewis had that unique relationship because they were young men in their 20s when they met. They were the same age. Because that was when I asked Swami the question once. Something happened and I was inclined to give cheeky responses to Swami. I, we, we teased a lot. He actually said he liked it. He wrote, he said somewhere, he said, I enjoy having you around because you, you give it back to me. <laughs> because it, he, it just was... So something happened and I, I just said something very teasing in return. It wasn't disrespectful, it was just the way we were. And I, I, I said, sir, did, um, did anybody ever tease Master? Did you tease Master? That's what I asked. And he just said, oh no. I mean immediately, oh no. He said, I was much too much in awe of him. He said, I, I just couldn't have. He, then Swami said, first he also said, but when I met Anandamoy Ma, he said, I was so much more mature as a devotee. He said, I had the kind of relationship with Ma that I was too young to have had with Master. It meant just very relaxed and very natural and uh, just very close, mother and son. But he said, Dr. Lewis had a wholly different relationship with Master because they'd been young men together. And also because Master had just arrived in America. And Swami also said too that um, for many of the years that Master was working in America and with many of the disciples that were there, um, he behaved very, very informally. And also... um, made very much underplayed his own consciousness or his own position and Swami he said among the reasons why everything was everybody had a different perspective on Master was that Master himself presented himself differently so one of the explanations Swami gave was that um, Master wanted everyone to believe that they could achieve what he had achieved and so he wanted to make it seem like he was just like them, only a little more so, instead of the way he was by the time Swami got there. And the older disciples talk of it somewhat in terms of the great samadhi that he had 
in August, in the summer of 1948, when he had the three-day experience with, with Divine Mother talking through him. Now, where did I read this? I don't, I, I, I feel like this came from Rina Lini, but I'm trying to remember why I would have known that. Maybe I heard it in an interview with her. But talking about how very different Master became after that. And just that uh, he, was so, he was just so much less personal. But that was when Swami came. So Swami never saw him really in any other way except that way. And uh, see, there was another point I was going to make about that. Let me think what it was. Oh, I guess it was just, but Dr. Lewis, always up to the end, just had a wholly different... See, the Master also, he just was different with every person. You could never say. You could never really say who he was. Swami said it was just folly to say who he was because he was whoever he needed to be in order to achieve the only thing he was trying to achieve, which was the spiritual advancement of the people around him. That, that goes back to Master hardening him to any kind of personal reactions. He, he, if you really think of it, it was his job. He was there on assignment. He didn't come for any reason. He had an assignment. And his assignment was to progress his disciples just the same way that Sri Yukteswar didn't want to have any disciples because he was done. He didn't want to have any strikers because it would have compelled him to come back and get them. But Master is in the middle of the project and he just had to keep, you know, everyone that he met. I mean, just think how many priorities we have when we're with people, but Master had one. And everything else was sub- subordinate to that. All of the work that you do, all of the skills that you have, all the accomplishments or lack of it, all the little relationships. I, the older I get, the more I understand how um, you know, all of that that was going on was in my own life, in my 20s and 30s, and in the lives of people around me. I was so engaged in it all, intensely engaged. And Swami was attentive and considerate, but I was always conscious of the fact that he never had the same sense of um, serious urgency that I always saw about it. Because uh, to him it's like, who cares? Whether you are healthy or well, whether you make a good marriage or you don't, whether you have kids or not, whether you have money, who cares? Because you've just been doing this a bazillion times. The only thing that matters is whether or not you progress spiritually through those things. And I was so caught up in the things and the importance of them. Everybody is. I'm, I'm less so now because I'm older. But I, I also just see it from his point of view. And he was always like that. Um, because he had one job. And so he, he could, one, he could, he could have such a long-range view. He was so uh, unexcitable, Swamiji was. He just couldn't get excited about small catastrophes or large catastrophes. And he, and he, wouldn't, um, he wouldn't force things when he knew that it wouldn't serve the people to force them. Even if it... Um, I, I just Right now, I was just working with... At one point, before we built anything of what is now the uh, expanding light, um, the, the, the sequence of events was we were, we were trying to get a master plan for all of Ananda. 
during the three or four years that the county just was stonewalling us, but we'd put out lots of energy and we had designed what is still the dining room and kitchen area and had invested a certain amount in the county process, not being aware at the time of how futile all of that effort was. We had spent a lot of money and put a lot of effort into it. And Swamiji had been shown the plan, but in his way, he didn't always put his full attention to things. He would sometimes let them pass. And so finally, he himself walked up to the land with a group of people, and he designed it completely, he designed it differently. As he, he said he wanted a, 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 a quadrangle built around an acre of land in the middle of the meadow, the meadow that just sits there now, still all these years, is wide open, empty. He wanted to put a, a, a Spanish-style, um, what's a mission-style, around about an acre. And then, then there would be a big temple at the end where they're about to build one now, which is toward the market area outside of that quadrangle, and a, a few um, sort of dormitories looking out toward the lake on that side. But the whole thing would be in the middle of the meadow built like this. And uh, he presented it, and there was, people had put so much, all they could think of when he presented it was what had already been done, and what would happen in this chaotic process if we suddenly pulled that out and had to start all over again. Now, from this perspective of 40 years, you think, well, that would have been easy, just, no, forget it, what difference did it make? But in the moment, it was not a small thing, and people just couldn't, couldn't shift in the way he wanted them to shift. And I, I mean, I was there, I remember it. I remember he was so excited, and we'll do it like this, and we'll do it like this. And then the individuals who were most involved, who, you know, had that little bit of, why didn't you say this earlier, energy, um, he just saw that it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't registering. And he just said, well, it's just an idea. Maybe there's another one like that. And then he walked away from it. And it, it, it was never able to come back exactly. But it's just like he, he, even for something that you would think should be pushed, but w- what's the project? Yeah, and, and that then becomes our responsibility. And I, my list of, I wish I had listened more closely to it, you know, is really, really long. So I don't hold anybody else responsible for anything that they did. Because in retrospect, it's all so clear, but in the moment it isn't. But it was always clear to him. You know, he could just, he could see this wasn't going to serve spiritually. And th- but then he left it and gave us a second chance and then just had to live with it. He said basically, we said many times, he said 10% of what I wanted for Ananda was actually possible. It's just nobody could see it. People couldn't go there. They just didn't know how to. But he didn't hold, he didn't blame. He just, but of course, 100% on, on other levels, he would talk about just how thrilling the deep, very deep spirituality of the people at Ananda was to him. But so there were two different ones. Which was the real project? Yeah, very interesting, huh? It's a very fine line, because as Shivani said, Swamiji, I know that 
project people are more important than projects but aren't some projects more important than some people's egos <laughs> so he said yes Shivani but you must be very careful that you know the difference before you make that decision <laughs> and there the matter rested <laughs> that was pretty much the end of it well I think that are there any comments or questions before we call it a night so we went from wherever we went from 91 to 96 through 96. And if I could borrow a pen from someone, I'll write that down. Thank you. On another occasion, the master gave this very simple explanation. You are a master when you can use your senses, but they don't use you. <laughs> <laughs>